Hey, I really appreciate uh, you guys leading. Jamie, I expect in a couple of weeks you'll be bringing your skateboard to join us for skate night. Yeah, okay. All right, great. Okay. Hey, I, uh, I did find Lisa put on the group me a challenge. You know, there's two group me's now, and I just want to commend you for doing such a great job in understanding the two group me's. The one is like, it's our version of Craigslist. Like, I need a roommate. I have a Peloton I don't use. Like, that's great. That's the church bulletin board. The other one is basically for Tuesday night and Christ Covenant proper. And you've done a great job. I really appreciate that. If you don't know what those are, come over to this table and we'll get you on it. Or just turn to the person next to you. They're probably like, oh, I'm on it. Uh, and they'll get you on it. If you're not on the GroupMe 2.0, that's the one I'm talking about. So I want to just encourage you real quick. If you have not signed up for the spring retreat, I think community is really important. The focus of that retreat is going to be community and hearing each other's stories slash whitewater rafting. So Brandon, if you could put that up, the picture of the QR code. If you just take a picture of that, it'll take you straight to the registration. You don't even have to pay right now because I can't get that figured out. So you just sign up and like you're in. Eventually I'll need money from you, but like in the meantime, just go ahead and sign up. The money will come. I can't guarantee that, but it's not that expensive. It'll be great. Uh, it's really 155 also, it's not even 165. So just come on. Uh, but Tonight, I want us to do something. In Colossians 3, the Bible says to set your mind on things above. Things where the Lord is, where he is seated on his throne. And so I challenge you in the next few minutes, as we try to figure out some of who God is, let's set our minds on things above. And it's amazing. It's just like the hymn says, the things of this world begin to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's amazing how when we set our minds on things above, stuff here starts to make sense. And so it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. And I've seen a few of you, you've been sunburnt. Like you're going to have, you're going to be like, it's hot in here. It's not. It's just spring break. And so I, I, uh, I just am proud of your sunburns and sitting outside. Some of you like tried, some of you didn't. Some of you low key said you didn't try, but you did. And so, you know what? I'm just glad you're here on a Tuesday night, the first real Tuesday of spring. Like it feels like it. It's amazing, but we're gonna harness ourselves. We're gonna set our minds on things above and we're gonna try to learn about these two sides of the Lord. One is his justice and the other is his mercy. And so, they are, I will probably use some incorrect words because as soon as you start to try to define and explain the Lord, you've stepped into impossible territory. He can be understood to some degree, but he can't be comprehended. He's greater than our greatest thoughts and our greatest thoughts are smaller than his smallest, smallest thoughts. Like, he's just beyond all that we can understand and comprehend. And at the same time, he's given us some clues in the scripture to get to know him. So, let's, let's start by looking at this idea 
Um, A.W. Tozer says that no society has risen above its concept of God. So right now, in our current culture, you know what? Let's just do this. With the people that you're sitting next to real quick, if you are working, what is the concept of God at your work? And if you're still in school and you're wrapping that bad boy up, what is the concept of God at your school? Just go ahead. Try to sum it up in like 10 words or so to the person next to you. I've given, uh, I've given Martin here a microphone. I would love to hear a few of your thoughts. So if, you, if you're like, hey, I think I've got my work pegged. Maybe you work for a small company. Maybe you work for Delta or Coke or Home Depot. If you, got, if you feel like, okay, I've got all, some of the Home Depot guys were like, hold on now, we're like the most conservative in the city. Um, and so let's, let's just hear, just raise your hand. We'd love to hear a couple of what you think your work is. Okay. Right over here. Ansley, she's got her hand up. Martin, you, you're lovely running around like that. You look great. Yeah. Say your name and say where you work. You, well, if you don't, you know what? Let's not, let's not like, we don't have to say where we work. I'm Ansley. I work in financial consulting. I'm not sure where. Um, so I actually had like lots of conversations about this with my Bible study a few months ago. I am like, right when I started, I got put on like an email chain for called like mission something, basically sending a message. If you like want to be on this email channel, just like a passage from the Bible, like what to pray for that week over like the company and your coworkers. Within a week, I got an email saying like it had been completely shut down. No email involving like Christianity was going to be sent from this company's email address at whatever. And if you wanted to like have these emails, you have to send it through like Gmail, personal account, but like hmm. nothing to do with this company's name. So yeah, I think that kind of summed it up pretty quickly. So would you say it's like, so this is interesting. Would you say there's a fear of God at yes. your company? That's, that's good. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, somebody else. So a bunch of us go to Georgia Tech, and we were talking about how there's almost this atheist culture around God, and they see us as being crazy or not believing in science if we believe in God. So a lot of disbelief. So maybe the, the cultural view of God would be ignorance or... Mm -hmm. 
lack of intelligence even. Yeah, or believing that they're smarter than the concept of God. Hmm. Said like a tech student, that's so great. <laughs> Somebody else, what's your work, your school? What is it? What's the concept of God? Uh, I, oh, hey. Um, stand, stand up so people can oh, see hey, you. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Um, I, I'm self-employed, so like I'll talk about it in college because that's the last kind of group of people that I had. Uh, it seems, especially in like, maybe it's a college thing because university and it's so cool to not believe in God and, and, and you know, God is mean and judgmental. And that's what a lot of my friends were, were thinking. Um, and I feel like a lot, of, a lot of it's obviously misunderstood because one, you know, the, the twisting of who God really is. People are either afraid to read the Bible to see what, you know, God's word actually says, and they just rely on what their friends say. And I think Lee Strobel said one time in uh, The Case for Christ that um, when he, he was an atheist, and when he went on this whole journey of discovering if God is even real, he said it took more faith for him as an atheist to believe that God wasn't real than to just give it up and say, well, maybe there is a God, and, you know, investigate that way. Yeah. Oh, that's good. One more. I feel somewhat. Oh, look at this right here. Okay, this is great. Uh, at my workplace, I would say like the true God of the Bible is deeply offensive just because of the different lifestyles that come in and out of there. Um, but the true concept of, or the concept that they would have of God would be you know, he kind of loves everybody and all roads lead to heaven and kind of that path. So I, I call that, and this is not my term, I'm borrowing this term. Um, that's great, Martin. Thank you very much. Way to go, Martin. That was lovely. Lovely. Uh, I, I call that what some of the theologians have called that, and that is the benevolent grandfather view of God that he's this old man in heaven who's just really nice, who gives out candy to people and eventually everybody gets to go stay at grandpa's house. Um, that's like the, that's kind of the, a, a common view, it's been around a long time. But let's look at Psalm 89, 14. We're gonna bounce around a few different places, but look at Psalm 89, 14. I'm trying to do this without my iPad so I can give it back to Jordan, but I'm gonna like, like your benevolent old grandpa, I do have my light for my Bible. This is perfect. Without going into the story, I had an eye injury a few months ago, if you don't know, and so I'm like trying to see stuff now. And I can partly. Okay, Psalm 89, 14, let me read it to you. You know what, let's do this. On Sunday morning we read and we say, the word of the Lord, and then everybody in the church says, thanks be to God. So, and I love that. Uh, but it's okay to have other traditions within Christ's covenant too. Like Sarah on Sunday said, he is risen. And it took me a second because I was like, oh yeah, he is risen indeed, which is just a common thing that we used to say growing up. But anyway, so it's okay to have other traditions. So would you stand as we read the word of God? This is actually an old Hebrew tradition. You stand when God speaks, when the word of God is said out loud. You sit when people speak. And you see this when Jesus even teaches in the synagogues. They stand to read the word and then they sit and he teaches. Um, his disciples came to him and they sat down and he began to teach them saying uh, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and so on. So Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice 
are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go out before you. I'll read it again. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go out before you. Lord, as we talk about you, as we try to understand some of who you are, I think what Tozer said is true, Father, that our concept of you will define our society. It'll define our livelihood. It'll define the place that we call home. So Lord, would you help us to understand you as best we can? Would you reveal yourself to us through your word, through your spirit? And Lord, may we hold fast to you and may we know how to walk with you as we go to work, as we go to school, as we do life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. In Psalm 89, if you want to look in Psalm 89, if you're an underliner, I've underlined several verses in my Bible. It's an interesting Psalm. In, uh, in verse one, there's this thing called steadfast love. In verse two, there's a thing called steadfast love. In verse 14, steadfast love. In verse 24, steadfast love. In verse uh, 28, steadfast love. In verse 32, steadfast love. It goes on. I flip the page, there's more. In, uh, and then it ends in verse 49 with the words steadfast love. Now that's interesting. This whole psalm is laced with the idea that God has steadfast love. I'm going to get into steadfast love in a few minutes. But the whole thing talks about the justice and the righteousness of God. Look at verse 14 again. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now think about it. God has given us a picture. The Hebrews were really, really good at pictures. The Old Testament is really good with pictures. Tons of pictures in the Old Testament. When we get to New Testament Christianity in the year 2021, if I said, tell me who God is, and you, you might use words like God is awesome. And I would say, that's right, he's awesome. Draw me a picture of awesome. You'd be like, Here's a unicorn jumping over a galaxy and be like, that's awesome. That's right. Um, or maybe like you would show a picture of a mustache. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So I think that like it's really hard to have a picture for some of the words that we like to use to describe God. And even some of the words the Bible uses like holy, it's really hard to have a picture. But the Hebrews are really good at saying God is like a rock. You're like, oh, well, now I get that. Like a big, heavy, doesn't move is still there the day after the storms come through. Like I get that God is a rock. Um, in Psalm 91, it says, the Lord is the shade at my right hand. So no matter, how, no matter how hot the day is, God is only as far away as the shade that hits your face from your right hand. That's the eminence of God. We talked about that last week. So the Hebrew Bible is full of really good pictures. A picture is right here. There's a throne. You can at least picture a throne. I don't know what the picture is in your mind. I don't know how tall it is. I don't know how wide it is. I don't know if it's like from one of the, the television shows that's on Netflix now. I don't know what kind of throne you have. But there's a throne. And it says the foundation of the throne. Now, the throne in my mind has like marble. Like, there's, like it's like a marble foundation. It's a big room. And you come in through the room and all the people are lined up on the sides as you approach the throne to go talk to the king. And so, but it says what the foundation is made of, and it's not marble. It says the foundation of this throne is righteousness and justice. These are the things that God sits on. Righteousness and justice hold him up. 
So this throne that the Lord is sitting on is the, the underside of it is righteousness and justice. So that must be very, very important. Now, when a king sits on a throne, and we don't live in a monarchy, so it's a little bit hard for us to understand this, but there have been lots of modern television shows on kings and such and, and queens and monarchy, so you get this. The king always gives edicts. He says, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to marry uh, so-and-so, or we're going to have this thing, or we're going to take over that country, or whatever it is. The king always gives out orders from his throne. So this particular throne is seated on righteousness and justice. But what comes out of the throne? What are the edicts that come out of this throne? Well, it says it in Psalm 89, 14. Steadfast love and faithfulness. So what we have are two opposing things. We have justice and righteousness as the bedrock. And you would think if justice and righteousness were the bedrock, then judgment and fury would be what would come from the throne. That makes logical sense. We've got justice and righteousness, so judgment and fury are going to come from the throne. But that's not what Psalm 89, 14 says. It says, justice and righteousness are the foundation, but steadfast love and faithfulness are what flow from the throne. Now look, this is giving us a picture that we can't make up on our own. The true God, not the God that your company has invented, not the God that your school has invented. The true God is beyond those thoughts. He dwarfs those thoughts. He's much larger than any of those thoughts. Those thoughts are all punitive. They're just, not, they're, they're nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so we have a God whose foundation is righteousness and justice and steadfast love and faithfulness are what flow out of him. So let's talk about the justice of God for a minute. I want you to think about the justice of God as God's gravity pulling things back towards how they are supposed to be. If you want just a, a layman's definition, and again, any definition I give you of this is God outside of quoting an actual verse is going to be lacking somewhere. But I think overall, this is a decent definition. I want you to think of the justice of God as his gravity that's pulling things back towards how they are supposed to be. That's what God is doing. God is not an angry God who's up in heaven going, I saw Andrea and boy, can't wait to get her. That's, but Andrea, I'm talking to you on the front row because you're on the front row and we made eye contact. Have you ever thought that maybe God was like a little bit like, like that? Like maybe he was like a little angry and looking for a way to like get you. Yeah, it's a natural thought, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not an angry old man who sits on his throne who's like, hmm, Noah, what can I do to him today? Like, he's had too many good days. Like, we don't have a God of Murphy's Law. So, when he enacts his justice, it's because things have broken loose from where he wanted them to go. And where he wanted them to go is always good. He had a good plan and a good purpose and a good thing. 
And when you and I break away from that good plan and that good purpose and that good thing, when we break away from that, God enacts justice to bring things back, not to punish us and put us down. Because he knows we're punishing ourselves. But we'll see at the very end tonight that it does sometimes feel a little bit like punishment. And so what do we do? We, we like justice. But the problem is we create our own sense of justice because we've said the God of the Bible is scary and he's going to mess my company up. The God of the Bible is judgmental and he doesn't like a bunch of these other people. The God of the Bible is clearly not caught up with science. And so we create our own God, little gods, lowercase g, and we make our own systems of justice. And here's what happens when we make our own systems of judgment, of justice. We have an LGBTQ movement that wants to press forward and pursue what it sees is right. We talked about this, one of the guys, uh, one of our elders was talking about this the other day. We also have uh, a feminist movement that wants to push forward and do what the feminist movement sees is right. But the interesting thing is, both of these movements are in some ways now at odds with one another because the feminist movement and a transgender movement in the, within the LGBTQ movement don't see eye to eye on what is right. And so you have every, imagine that across the world. We all create our own sense of justice because we don't like the one that's given to us from God. So we say, let's just make our own system of justice. And what we would like is for everybody to go along with our system of justice. But the problem is every system of justice you and I create apart from God's system of justice is gonna conflict with every other system of justice created. And so when we run from the justice of God, we actually create even more injustice. I want to pause for just a second. Brandon's going to play probably my favorite video on what is justice. It's done by the folks out in Seattle, or maybe they're in Portland, the Bible Project people. So Brandon, if you want to cue that up, I'll talk in just a second when this is done. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. <laughs> And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. 
But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. 
It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So when we look at the idea of justice being the bedrock of the throne of God, we must not think of justice as judgment. Judgment certainly happens with the justice of God, but God's justice is not trying to smite a bunch of people. God's justice is to bring things back to the way they are supposed to be. And those of us who call ourselves Christians are to be about acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. And so we are to be about not showing people that they're wrong and that their system of justice is a fraud and ha-ha, we were right. But instead, our acting out God's justice is in tune with God, trying to pull things back to the way they are supposed to be, which, by the way, is the way we're happiest. When we're in tune with the Lord and we're walking with the Lord, that's when we're at our very best. And so that is also when we are being and living injustice. But so that you're not unaware, justice cannot be separated from righteousness. They are used interchangeably in the Hebrew and the Greek. So if you want another idea for justice, if you were like, I had no idea, justice and righteousness share the same root word in both Hebrew and Greek. So when you read the words in the New Testament, about those, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You can substitute in there, let me think about this with the idea of justice also. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Blessed are those, uh, or I'm sorry, that for you seek first his kingdom and his justice. And all these things will be added unto you. So Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. When you think of justice, think of righteousness. When you think of righteousness, think of justice. What does God do? He makes us right with Him. We, he imparts righteousness to us. What does that mean? We go back to the order that it was supposed to be initially. But the interesting thing is, yes, that's the bedrock. But the way He flows this out often is with mercy. Did you know that mercy is a, a basic definition of mercy is goodness, kindness, and faithfulness. When you read the Psalms, you read that God has merciful, and right after that you read he's faithful. That's because they're inseparable. The God that we worship, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is merciful, which means he's kind, but also means he never gives up. He's the most faithful of faithful. I don't know if you knew this, Jordan, uh, Jordan Coughlin and I were talking beforehand. Mercy is used four times more in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. 
People that talk about the God of the Old Testament as this angry God that just wanted to smite people and, and strike them down. Mercy is actually used four times more in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. God wanted us to know in the midst of enacting justice that He's merciful. He is merciful, and He shows us over and over again in the Scriptures. Again, if you think about, I'll give you a New Testament and an Old Testament. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, it's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I think Jason referenced it on Good Friday if you were at that service. But it's the story of, uh, no, he, re he referenced the rich man and Lazarus. This is uh, the Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector. They go to the temple and they pray. And we talked about this on the ski retreat. We've talked about this a few times. I love this story. But one guy says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this person, a sinner. The other guy stands far off and he beats his breast, the Bible says, and he looks up to heaven and he says, please, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified that day. God's justice was caught up in this mingling flow of this man's plea for mercy. And what won out? God's mercy won out over his judgment. In James chapter 2, it says that when God goes to judge, he will certainly judge and he will judge rightly and he will judge fairly, but mercy triumphs in judgment. So <clears throat> Tozer says something interesting. He says that mercy and justice, when they collaborate and God sees and he turns, he turns and he sees iniquity and then he sees the man of iniquity rushing to the cross, he no longer sees iniquity, but he sees justification. And so we're justified by grace through faith. You see, when God extends his mercy, and combines it with justice, and a person repents, the mercy always wins. But here's, here, well, Psalm 103, verse 12, it's a great passage. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his, our transgressions from us. That speaks of the mercy of God. So yes, he's just, and he's not gonna bend on being just. Things are going to go back to the way they used to be. He's going to make the world right. If somebody cheated and they got the job you were supposed to get, if somebody cut you out of a scholarship, if somebody did whatever it was, it's going to be made right somehow, some way. But at the simultaneous moment that it's made right, it's made right with mercy mixed in with it. This is, this is part of the problem. If, when I think about God, I think about a recipe. Heather made this banana pudding for Easter, and it was, it's illegal in 47 states. Instead of Nilla wafers, which I know you're going to say that's a cardinal sin if you leave the Nilla wafers out, she read this or had this, she followed some blogger or something, and they were like, hey, try this. And we tried it, and now we need it intravenously. Um, what, instead of Nilla wafers... She got a pack of Nutter Butters and crumbled up the Nutter Butters and like put a layer on the bottom and then the banana pudding and then a layer of Nutter Butters and then the banana pudding and then a layer of Nutter Butters. I'm telling you, you need to leave right now and go make that. 
But when I think about, when I think about God, I think about him like one part bananas, one part heavy whipping cream, one part Nutter Butters, one part like, I think about, okay, the Nutter Butters are God's, that's clearly his mercy. The heavy, the heavy whipping cream, that's clearly his judgment. You can't get that stuff off of you. It's going to stick. Uh, like, and you mix them all together and you get this really delicious dish. But that's actually not how the Bible paints the picture of God. If you turn to, if you turn to Exodus 34 real quick. Exodus 34. Great verses, starting in verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's easy to read that and to say, okay, God is loving, he's merciful, but he also is clearly going to judge. So he's into justice and righteousness. So those must be all the parts of God. But the breakdown is this, when you read the rest of scripture, he's not part of those things. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God abounding in this thing, a God abounding in this thing. He is all of that, all the time, all of those individual things all at once. The reason you and I have such a hard time understanding God and we make our own concepts of him at our work, in our school, and with our friends is because we are parts of things. I'm sometimes nice. I'm sometimes mean. I'm sometimes funny. I'm most times awkward. Like, I know these things about me. But I'm not all one thing all the time. And God is always just. He's always merciful. He's always righteous. He's always kind. He's always good. He never departs from justice. He is all the time all those things. He's not a recipe that we can break apart and say he's one-third this, one-third this, one-third this, and then a little bit of this and that just added in. He's all of that all the time. And so we could go on and we could, we could talk and talk about these things, but let me just give you a wrap-up. What you need to know is, yes, you need to know how to be a good employee at your company. And the first part of the summer, that's what we're gonna talk about for a couple of weeks, is how, do I, how am I a light in the world that I work, in the world that I play, in the world that I, that's, I'm having to do some reading and studying because it's a hard thing to tackle. We're gonna talk about all that. How do I be justice in these places? How do I be mercy in these places? But right now, what you need to know as we wrap up tonight is that God is merciful. God is righteous. Not one part each, all parts both. And so there are times, 
when he's going to let you get caught. There are times when you're not going to get away with it. There are times when something bad could have happened, but instead the Lord is going to give you some incredible relief in a situation. But you and I don't get to just talk about the mercy and the justice of God. You and I, if we are Christians, we will live the mercy and justice of God. And so I want to wrap up with a thought from Hebrews 12. Turn over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is an incredible chapter. It starts off with, Therefore, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is marked out before us, uh, setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And for most of us, that's where we stop reading or that's where we stop memorizing that passage. But he goes on and he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Now remember, our struggle against sin is injustice. When we struggle with sin and we give in to sin, it is injustice. We pull away from the way God wanted it. God's justice is pulling us back towards himself. And he's doing that simultaneously while having mercy. So he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. I want to end the thoughts tonight on the same God who is seated on the throne with righteousness and justice as his foundation, who pours out mercy and faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is another word in the Old Testament. The ESV loves to use it in place of mercy, but it's the same word. Out of his throne flows mercy or steadfast love. The base of it is justice. And what happens is sometimes you and I get under the thumb of God's justice because he's merciful. And he puts his thumb on us and he mashes down and it feels like we're just going to pop. But he sees that we're trying to crawl off of the place that he's put us and away from the plan that he's designed. We're pulling away from his justice, his righteousness, his goodness. And so when God puts the pressure on you and you have to confess or you have to break up or you have to change jobs or you have to whatever it is, don't squirm out from under his thumb because it is, it is the thumb of justice and justice is good and it is the thumb of mercy. He's putting his thumb and his pressure on us not because he says, ha, I've been waiting to catch you in something. But because he says, no, you're my child 
and I see that you're headed towards a fire and I want to pull you back. And even if it skins your knees while I pull you back, I'm okay with that because I don't want you to get caught up in the fire. So my hope, either right now if you're undergoing some of the discipline of the Lord or whether you will in the future, because all of us will in the future. We don't grow out of it. Hopefully it becomes less and less, but we're never too good for it. Is that we'll see that discipline that God puts on our life as a really good thing. No matter how uncomfortable it is, we'll see, God, you did that because you're just, you're righteous. And it's good to be just and righteous. And you did it because you had mercy on me and you didn't want me to live in injustice and unrighteousness. You wanted to pull me back into your care as a father would his child. So my hope for you tonight is that you will see and appreciate the discipline of the Lord on your life. Because the discipline of the Lord is the signature of his justice and mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good to us when you discipline us. Lord, it is because of your justice and your mercy that you discipline us. Lord, would you forgive us for creating false ideas of who you are and supporting false ideas of who you are. Lord, would you help us to see you for you and you are simultaneously always just and you will not bend in being just, but you are simultaneously merciful. And it is in your mercy that you sent Jesus to the cross for us. Lord, our hope is in your mercy and through your mercy by sending Jesus to the cross that we might be a part of your righteousness. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen.